Well, good morning again, Coastal Church. We are going to continue in our series through 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 14 this morning. By the way, I should mention this. I forgot this during announcements. I don't normally do announcements, so I always forget this part. There's a connect card on the bottom of your bulletin. We'd like everybody to fill that out. If you're a visitor, we just want to send you a thank you card for coming. So just fill that out. If you have any questions about the sermon, any questions about anything going on at Coastal, you can write that on that connect card, okay? So I had to make sure I mentioned that so I don't get in trouble. Anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been going through 2 Corinthians this summer, and I'm really excited for the opportunity to open up God's Word with you guys this morning. So I think that this section in 2 Corinthians is addressing the relationship between the church and the world. So when we say the world, what do we mean? Do we mean just the globe, the, the planet that we're living on? Well, often in Scripture, the word world refers to the human race apart from the saving work of Jesus. The Apostle John defines the world for us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if that's the world, then worldliness is what it means to look like or to act like or to be like the world. I like the definition by Pastor Kevin DeYoung. He said that worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And I think that our text this morning addresses what this relationship is supposed to look like. But before we jump in this morning, I wanted to take a second to illustrate how this relationship has often looked in the church by taking a look at really two opposite ends of the spectrum. There's an old Christianese phrase that I bet a lot of you guys know. So finish it after I start it. Christians are to be in the world, but what? But not of the world. That's right. That's the old phrase. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And I think that's true. But I think that Christians have often veered into one extreme or the other in living this principle out. So on the one hand, some Christians emphasize that we are in the world. God has given us a mission to reach the world. But in order to do that effectively, catch this part, the world needs to like us. So if we're going to reach the world, we need to look like the world. We need to dress like the world. We need to talk like the world. We need to live like the world. When the world is offended by some aspect of our message, we either won't talk about it, or better yet, we'll find some scholars to reinterpret the Bible for us so that we can feel comfortable making the world feel more comfortable. And so Christians who have this mindset basically have the idea in mind that if the church doesn't adapt to the world, if the church doesn't adapt to whatever the culture is saying in that moment, the church is going to die. I saw this illustrated really clearly a couple of years ago. Uh, in 2015, as I'm sure all of you know, the Supreme Court decision um, that legalized same-sex marriage happened. And a Facebook friend of mine who is a professing believer, he made the following status, and it stuck with me ever since when it comes to thinking about these things. He said, if conservative churches disagree with same-sex marriage, they are ultimately going to find themselves on the wrong side of history. So in other words, if the church doesn't change, if the church doesn't reinterpret the Bible then the church is going to get left behind. That's this mentality in a nutshell. It's, it's the idea that we can sacrifice the purity of the church. We can compromise on God's word 
so that we can reach the world, so that we can gain the favor of the world. But then again, there's the other hand. The pendulum can sometimes swing all the way to the other side. And the other side says, listen, we are not of the world. And this side, in an attempt to preserve the purity of the church, functionally tries to go out of the world entirely. So this happened in the Middle Ages when monks would shave their heads, put on some old clothes, and go live in a cave and pray all day, or whatever they did. This happens today in a less extreme example. This happens today when Christians, you know, out of a good, right desire to avoid any sinful influence from the world, basically try to live their lives in a Christian bubble. So it's the idea of, I'm only listening to K-Love. I'm only eating at Chick-fil-A. Nothing wrong with that one. I mean, I'm not trying to live in a Christian bubble, but I already do that. Um, but anyways, a better example. I'm only going to buy stuff from Christians, I'm only going to do business with Christians. I'm only going to talk to Christians. I'm only going to have Christian friends. Really, it's this idea that the world has cooties, and as Christians, we need to put ourselves in this little quarantine zone and avoid any contact with the world. So this side sacrifices the mission of the church for the sake of the purity of the church. So my question this morning is, what are we supposed to do as a local church living in this world? Do we have to pick one of these two extremes, either compromise on this side or completely running away on this side? Well, I think that our text this morning teaches us how to be the church in the midst of a sinful world, how to stand firm on the principles of God's word without running away. So here is my sermon in one sentence for you this morning. God has called the church to be separate from the world so that the church can reach the world with the gospel. We don't sacrifice our purity as a church to reach the world, but rather our purity as a church is our greatest witness to reach the world. So with that in mind, let's take a look together at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. The word of God says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Would you pray with me? Our, our Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and it is a light to our path. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come now, would open our hearts and open our minds to understand what you would have to teach us from this word this morning. Lord, we come to you in humble dependence as your children, wanting to learn how we can please you, how we can live as your people in the midst of a sinful world and honor you. So Lord, would you teach us? Would you show us the way? Would you guide me as I preach this morning, Lord? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this text this morning starts with a command. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked. 
with unbelievers. So what does it mean to be unequally yoked? I was cooking breakfast with my wife this, uh, earlier this week after I had started prepping this message, and I was making eggs and sausage links. And I dropped one of the sausage links, and it fell right into the middle of the yoke. And I went, oh, man, now it's unequally yoked. Uh, I, don't, I don't think Paul was talking about eggs here. Uh, I think he's actually using a metaphor from the Old Testament law to make his point about how the church should be related to the world. So it says in Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So in an agrarian culture, farmers would yoke two animals together to plow a field. You guys might, if you have been here back in December when Pastor Sean preached from Matthew chapter 11, and he brought a big old yoke in here. Anybody here for that? A couple of you? Yeah, that's a yoke, okay? So the Old Testament law says you can't do that with an ox and a donkey together. Why? Well, because these two animals have very different natures that make them incompatible for the task that God has given them to accomplish. Oxen are big, and they're strong, and they're powerful, and they're perfect for pulling stuff. Donkeys, not as much. If you've seen Shrek, you know that to be the case. (laughs) But anyway, the point that Paul's making with this metaphor is this. Believers can't be yoked together with unbelievers for the same reason that oxen and donkeys can't be yoked together. We're of two different natures that makes us incompatible for the task that God has given us to accomplish. So what we see in Scripture that to be yoked to something is often a metaphor. It means to closely identify with something and to partner with it for a common cause. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you. It means to follow him, to identify with him, to do what he is doing in the world, to join him in his mission. Believers and unbelievers can't be yoked together in that way. And here's what I think is the point of this command. The church is to be separate from the world. The church must be separate from the world. Paul tells the church at Corinth not to be unequally yoked because of this. And this teaching, by the way, it's not new with Paul. It permeates the whole New Testament and indeed the whole Bible. The idea of the separation of the church from the world is Christianity 101. Listen to James. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Yikes. That's not a place I want to be. I don't want to be an enemy of God. So there's no neutrality here. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no trying to play both sides. And I want to consider what it means to be unequally yoked or separate from the world. But before I do that, for the sake of clarity, I want to tell you two things that I don't think it means before we have any misunderstandings. So first, Paul's command not to be unequally yoked does not mean that we never have any social interactions with unbelievers. It doesn't mean that we put ourselves into that Christian bubble and we act like if we even come around unbelievers, we're gonna get a disease or something. He dealt with this in 1 Corinthians chapter five. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. What Paul was addressing there is he's saying, look, if someone takes on the name of Christian, someone takes on the name of believer and starts to live like this, that means we are not to recognize them as a believer because their profession of faith has been invalidated by their life. 
but he's not talking about not having any contact with the world. Listen, God doesn't want us to go out of the world. He doesn't want us to hide from the world. I think that this command about not being unequally yoked is not about isolation, but protection. We're not to isolate ourselves from the world and go into that Christian bubble. The point of being separate from the world is about protecting the purity of the church from the sinful influence of the world. So here's my encouragement to you guys. I think that Christians ought to be good neighbors. We ought to be good citizens. We ought to be the best people to do business with. We ought to be good tippers when we go to restaurants. We ought to build friendships with unbelievers and have good relationships with them. All of these things we need to do. But the point of it, the goal of it, is to bear witness to Jesus Christ and how he has saved us, and how he has redeemed us, and how he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. One commentator said that this passage, it's not trying to keep the church out of the world. It's trying to keep worldliness out of the church. So second, I don't think Paul is primarily dealing with marriage here. So a lot of times people use the passage, do not be unequally yoked, and they say, therefore, a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. And now, just to be clear, that's true. I don't think Christians should marry non-Christians. And if you're a single and you're a Christian and you're dating, that should be the first question you ask when you meet someone. Are they a committed follower of Jesus? I think that should be front and center in your thinking. And I think that that's a good application of the principle in this passage, that the church needs to be separate from the world. But I think if we make this passage just about marriage, we can miss the bigger point, which is the idea of the separation of the church from the world. Does that make sense? Good. So what does this mean? If those are two things that it doesn't really mean, what does it mean for the church not to be unequally yoked? It means that the church is to radically separate herself from the sinful influence of the world. So this includes any relationships, any practices, any speech, any identities, any philosophies, any worldviews, or anyone or anything else that would compromise the purity of the church So the church can't talk like the world. The church can't think like the world. The church can't act like the world. The church can't identify with the world in any meaningful way. Though we are in this world and we are to bring the gospel to this world, the church must always remain distinct from the world. And Paul gives us three reasons for this in the rest of this text. So first, believers cannot be yoked together with unbelievers because we have a different nature. It's the oxen and the donkeys thing. After his command not to be unequally yoked, Paul actually gives five rhetorical questions in this passage that I think highlight the absurdity of the church being yoked together with the world. So the first is this. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Believers' lives are marked by righteousness. And unbelievers' lives are marked by lawlessness. You know, as I've been reflecting on this letter that the apostle wrote to the Corinthians here, there's so much in it about the gospel. And the gospel is front and center of what we are at Coastal. And just to be clear, when I say the gospel, I mean the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that every one of us, the entire human race, has fallen into sin and rebellion against God. And for that reason, we deserve God's judgment. But God, out of his great love for us, wrapped himself in flesh. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Son, fully God, fully man, came to our earth, 
lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved to die in our place, taking our punishment and rose victoriously from the dead. And when we repent of our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ alone, we will have eternal life. That's the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. And we saw in chapter five of 2 Corinthians that when we repent and we believe in that gospel, God transforms us into new creations. He says that the old is gone and the new has come. I don't want to gloss over that too quickly and keep moving. Believers in this room, you are not the same person you were before you came to Christ. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in you. That's good news, amen? That is good news. And because of that, God sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of you and to give you a new desire to please him by living according to his word, to living a life that is marked by righteousness. You see, the mark of a true Christian is one that has a desire to live in righteousness, a desire to live a holy life. That's the sign that you've come to know Jesus. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It causes you to hate the things that you once loved and to want to pursue Christ. But you see, the life of an unbeliever is marked by the desire to please self. And that's where all of us were before Christ. And it doesn't say disobedience. It says lawlessness. There's a difference between disobedience and lawlessness. Disobedience says, I know the law and I'm not going to obey it. Lawlessness says, I am the law. I will decide what's right and wrong for me. No one can tell me what I'm going to do and not do with my life. That's lawlessness. That's what the human race has been doing ever since Genesis chapter three, when we grabbed the fruit. We've been saying, God, I'm going to make the rules for myself. That is where unbelievers are. And that's why the church can't be yoked together. How can a desire for righteousness and a desire for lawlessness go together? They can't. Our lives are pursuing things that are in opposite directions. So the second rhetorical question is this. What fellowship has light with darkness? This is our next point this morning. Believers live in the light and unbelievers live in the dark. We saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the gospel is a light that shines into our hearts. And because of the gospel, our eyes have been opened to see Christ as glorious. And now we are living in the light. But this isn't true of unbelievers. And don't take my word for it. Listen to Jesus. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Believers cannot be yoked together with unbelievers because we are in the light and they are in the dark. And those two things cannot be mixed. The third rhetorical question, I believe, is the second reason that Paul gives why believers can't be yoked together with unbelievers. And it's this, we live in a different kingdom. The third question says, what accord has Christ with Belial? In the Old Testament, the word Belial just meant worthless or worthlessness. But in the later Judaism of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that came to be used as a personal name for Satan. So here's the point for us. Believers live in the kingdom of Christ. 
unbelievers live in the kingdom of Satan. So Paul is saying this, what accord has Christ with Satan? Believers being yoked together with unbelievers, the church acting like the world makes as much sense as Jesus and Satan being yoked together. Why? Because these are the two kings of the two kingdoms. Christ is the king of the kingdom of light. Satan is the king of the kingdom of darkness. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan is the little g, God of this world. It says in 1 John that the whole world is under the influence of the evil one. And these two kingdoms are at war with one another, if it could even be called a war. Read the book of Revelation. But anyways, when a person believes in the gospel, not only is their nature changed completely, but they transfer their citizenship from one kingdom to another. Listen to Colossians chapter one. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's another reason why believers cannot be yoked together with unbelievers. We're living in different kingdoms and we're living for different kings. The church yoking together with the world, it's not just improper because we're of different natures. It's treason. So unbelievers have a different nature from believers. They live in a different kingdom. And for this reason, Paul's fourth rhetorical question is basically just stating the obvious. He says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The answer is none. And this leads us to the final climactic fifth rhetorical question in our passage. And I think based on the structure of this text, this is the heart of it. This is Paul's big point. This is the main reason why believers cannot be yoked together with unbelievers. How do I know it's the most important one? Because after Paul says this, he quotes six verses from the Old Testament. Now, as a preacher, when I want to make a point, I'll quote one verse, maybe two. Paul quotes six. So I think that means we ought to listen, okay? Paul said, what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God. The church is the temple of the living God. That's the heart of the reason why the church cannot be yoked together with the world, because we are the temple of God, and yoking together with the world is like bringing idols into the temple. Well, what is an idol? Well, in biblical times, an idol was a figure made of wood or stone that the people would worship as a god. In the Ten Commandments, the first one says, you shall not worship any other gods. And the second commandment forbids worshiping the true God through an idol. God forbids this because he is a jealous God and because he wants all of our love and our devotion and our affection for him alone. And God doesn't play well with other gods. So does anyone remember the story in 1 Samuel uh, chapters four and five, the, the people of Israel were at war with the Philistines and they brought the Ark of the Covenant out into battle because they thought, you know, if the Ark is there, we're definitely gonna win. They lose. The Philistines get the Ark. They bring it back to their temple. The Philistines thought that the Ark of the Covenant was the idol for the people of Israel. They thought it, it was their God. So thinking it was a God, they just put it in their temple right next to their gods. In particular, they put it right next to their main God, a guy named Dagon. So the next morning, the priests, the Philistine priests come in and they see Dagon there 
lying face down before the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, they probably just thought it was a windy day. You know, sometimes you go outside, it was windy the night before, there was a storm, you see your lawn chair laying over. So the priests just go over, you know, they, they pick up Dagon, cool, he's back to being God, we're good, and they leave. They think everything's good. So they come back the next day. This time, poor Dagon has fallen over, his head's been whacked off, and both of his hands are gone. What did the priests say now? They said, Dad, gone. <laughs> I was proud of that one. Um, they were terrified is what really happened. They were terrified because their God just got beat up by Israel's God. So what do they do? They put it on a cart and they ship him back to Israel because they figured out that Israel's God wasn't to be messed with. So what's the moral of the story? It's this. God does not tolerate other gods in his presence. He is the one true and living God, and he will not tolerate idols. So what does this mean for us today in the church? It means this. We are to flee idolatry. I believe with all of my heart that idolatry is the number one sin of our culture today. I believe that idolatry is the number one sin of the human race ever. And that might sound weird because we don't bow down to Dagon. We don't have these idols that we bow down to and worship. But you see, bowing down to a statue is just an expression of idolatry. That is worshiping the idol. Idolatry is really a heart posture. Idolatry is making anyone or anything other than God number one in your life. Your idol, your God, is whatever you look to for your ultimate sense of joy, of peace, of meaning, of satisfaction, of security in your life. So I'm going to say this next sentence, and however you fill in the blank, that's what you're worshiping this morning. I would be happy if I could just have blank. However you complete that sentence reveals what you are worshiping. And you see, idols are often good things. You can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of your marriage. You can make an idol out of your spouse. You can make an idol out of your ministry. You can make an idol out of anything, your money, your sex, your pleasure, your success. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol-making factories. We're constantly living on this treadmill of trying to find something other than God that is going to satisfy us. And that is idolatry. Jeremiah chapter two, the prophet said to the people, be appalled, be utterly shocked because my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We are made in the image of God. And part of what that means is that only God can satisfy us. Only God can give us true meaning and true peace and true fulfillment in our lives. But our problem because of sin is we are constantly looking for something else other than God to do what only God can do. That's idolatry. And the only response to idolatry is to knock that idol down, whack off his head, whack off his hands and put God on the throne of our hearts. Paul is adamant in this text that the church as the temple of God can have nothing to do with idols. So both as individual Christians and as a body of believers, 
we must flee idolatry. We must identify the things in our lives that we are putting ahead of God and get rid of them. So before we move on to our final point this morning, I want to connect the dots a little bit between idolatry and being unequally yoked. I believe that one of the main idols in the evangelical church in America is the favor of the world. And you see, idols, they always demand worship and they always demand sacrifices. So how do churches in America worship this idol? By ignoring or revising the truths of scripture that are offensive to the world and by living like the world so that we can gain their approval. And I believe this next sentence with all of my heart. A big reason why the church in America has been so ineffective in reaching people for the gospel is the worldliness of those who would profess to be the church. Our problem isn't that the church is offended by the hard truths of God's words and the world is offended. Our problem is that the world can't tell the difference in us and them. What was so heartbreaking for me is as I was preparing this message and God laid this topic on my heart, I did some research and listened to just a few statistics that I came across. Professing, I use that word carefully, professing Christian men are just as addicted to pornography as the world. Professing Christian women actually have more abortions than the world. The divorce rate between professing Christians and non-Christians is virtually the same. How are we supposed to reach the world when we are the world? When there's no difference, when we're so yoked together, you can't tell it apart. I think in a lot of ways, the church in America is salt that has lost its flavor. And there's only one solution. The only solution is knocking down the idols and bowing the knee to King Jesus. It's the only solution. We must unyoke ourselves from the world and be a distinct people so that when we speak the gospel, the world will know that the gospel actually works. When they can see that it has changed us, they will know that it has worked. In the second century, there was an apologist named Justin Martyr. Uh, And at that time, the church was under intense persecution. So he wrote to the emperor of Rome asking him to stop this persecution against the church. And what did this great apologist point to as the reason why Christianity was legit? I love apologetics. That means the discipline of defending the Christian faith by looking at different arguments from scripture, from archaeology, from history, from science, so on and so forth. I love it. I'm passionate about it. But that's not what Justin Martyr did. When he was talking to the emperor at Rome, he said, look at our lives. We don't commit adultery. We love our neighbors. We take in the babies that no one else wants that they leave on the street We love one another. We take care of our people. We feed the hungry. Jesus said, the world will know we are his followers when we love one another. Guys, I believe that the church will start to make a dent in this wicked culture for the gospel when we throw down our idols and we live as God intends us to live as the church. People will come to Jesus when they can see beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus has changed us, that he has made a difference in us, 
the greatest proof that Christianity is true is a transformed life. Because if Jesus can change someone like Paul or someone like Peter or someone like Moses or someone like me, then God can change you. And this leads to our final point this morning. We are to pursue holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, just as a side note, some of you guys might think it's weird that we're going one verse into the next chapter rather than just taking a a nice little section. The reason for that is that I think Paul's original flow of thought goes one verse into the next chapter. The chapter and verse divisions were added about 500 years ago. They weren't originally in the text. So Paul wasn't going, it's probably good. We can start chapter seven now. It, It was a letter. Okay, so there weren't, the chapter and verse divisions were added later to help us find stuff, but they're not necessarily inspired. Okay, So anyways, Paul begins by saying, since we have these promises, the promises that he's talking about are the six verses from the Old Testament that he quoted to prove that the church is the temple of God. These promises are for us as believers. And he says, on the basis of that, because we're the temple of the God, we should walk in holiness. The first part of our passage, really the first half of this sermon, more than half, don't get antsy, the first major section of this sermon is telling us what we need to avoid, namely being yoked together with the world. This next section tells us what we need to pursue, which is holiness. And I think Paul teaches us three things about holiness here. So first, holiness is corporate. Paul says, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. Holiness isn't just about me turning from my sin and growing in my personal relationship with Jesus. We grow in holiness as a church. That's why we put such a large emphasis on community here at Coastal. Listen, you need it. You can't live the Christian life that God intended you to live alone. God wants us to grow in holiness as a church. And it's not either or, it's both and. So God calls us to be sure as individuals to grow in holiness. We need to turn from our own sin daily. We need to be in the word alone daily. We need to pray daily. But the problem is that a lot of us stop there. But God wants us to grow in these things together. I mean, there are dozens of one another passages in the New Testament. There's love one another. There's serve one another. There's bear one another's burdens Try fulfilling just one of those during your quiet time. You can't. God calls us to live together as a church body. And now on the other side, don't get me wrong, because you still need that personal time with the Lord. If you're not growing as an individual, community is not going to do you any good. A community is only good as good as what it's unified around. That's why we need both. We need to grow in our personal relationship with Jesus, but also grow as a church. So let me just move here very quickly from preaching to getting up in your business. Move from preaching to meddling. Corporate worship on Sunday mornings needs to be a priority in our lives. It needs to be a priority. It says in the book of Hebrews, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. And I get it. I know there's going to be five or 10 people coming up to me after the service. Well, Nate, you don't get it. My work and my kids and 
my, I don't sleep enough and yada, yada, yada. And I'm, I get it. Listen, I get that people are busy and we have lives outside of these four walls. I get it. But at the same time, if God is really supposed to be number one in our lives, like we just talked about, and there's no other idols, shouldn't the worship of God with the people of God be a high priority in our lives? We need to make corporate worship a priority to be here regularly, faithfully, to be committed, to serve, not just to come. This needs to be a priority. Secondly, God calls us to holiness in both body and spirit. When I was a new Christian, I used to think about sin really just in physical terms. So I'd go through the Ten Commandments. Well, I haven't sinned. I haven't, you know, uh, killed anybody today. I hadn't committed adultery today. I hadn't stolen anything today. I'm doing pretty good. I used to think, I am, I've got this Christian thing down. But God is calling us to comprehensive holiness in both body and spirit. That includes what we do, what we think, how we love, how we react to certain situations, so on and so forth. God tells us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement in this passage. So here's an exhortation to you guys this morning. What are the sins in your life that maybe can't be seen in your actions that God wants to cleanse you of? Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your lust. Maybe it's your greed. Maybe it's your impatience. Ask God to reveal those things to you and examine your heart and turn from it so that we can cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. Let me connect the dots here between holiness and body and spirit and holiness and community. If you're married, ask your spouse to point out anything in you that's not pleasing to the Lord. I'm sure they can think of something. You know, um, Al Mohler, he's one of my theological heroes. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He's accomplished a lot of amazing things um, in his career, and he was being interviewed one time, and they asked him, you know, you've done all these amazing things. How do you stay humble without missing a beat? He just responded, I have a wife. (laughs) Or if not, ask your small group leader. Ask your pastor. Ask a, a Christian friend. Part of the reason why we need community to grow in holiness is because we have blind spots. The Bible says that sin is deceitful, and I've seen many people, including myself, especially myself, be deceived into thinking that, spiritually speaking, we are just fine, when really there's something really bad going on that we can't see. We need each other to cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit. And finally, we are to pursue holiness in the fear of God. What does it mean to fear God? Well, I don't think fear needs to be understood as being afraid of harm, afraid that God's going to hurt us. But I think it should be understood as a healthy reverence and respect that God is not to be messed with. When I was in Zimbabwe a couple years ago, uh, we saw a lion, like not in the zoo, out in the wild. It was really cool. I mean, he was beautiful. He was majestic. He was not even that far away. It was, it's a sight I'll never forget. And you see, none of us were afraid of the lion because we're safely a safe distance away and we're in a Jeep, so I think we're faster than him. I don't know how fast lions can run, but we're probably faster than him, so we could get away. Um, But you better believe that none of us are jumping out of that Jeep to go give him a hug. There's this understanding that we're not afraid that he's gonna hurt us, but we're not gonna test it. And whenever I think about that story, it reminds me of that beautiful passage in the Chronicles of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver said that Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? 
Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. I think that's the attitude towards God that we ought to have. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. We can trust him. We can love him. As believers, we don't have to be afraid that God is punishing us every time we sin. On the cross, Jesus took every ounce of punishment that you deserved for every single sin you have ever committed, are committing, or ever will commit. Every ounce of punishment was poured out on Christ instead of you on the cross. So we don't need to be afraid that God's punishing us, but at the same time, God is a good and loving father and he will discipline us when we start to wander away from him. God is not to be mocked and he is not to be disrespected. So our pursuit of holiness and purity as a church must be marked by a healthy fear and reverence for the holiness of God. God has called us as a church to be in the world, but not of the world. And I think that our distinctiveness as the church is the evidence that the gospel works. And until we pursue holiness in the fear of God, like this passage tells us, we're never going to make a difference in this world. I'd like to close this morning by reading this quote from Pastor John MacArthur. He said, Worldliness doesn't make the gospel look attractive. It makes it look impotent. A church that's just like the world has nothing to offer the world. Our distinctiveness from the world does not compromise our witness. Our distinctiveness is our witness. So here's my final exhortation for you this morning. Let us, as a church body, separate ourselves from any worldly influences and practices and pursue holiness. Let us cleanse ourselves of any sinful ways of thinking, of speaking, of acting. Let's be careful who and what we let influence us, influence and shape our thinking. Let us live in purity of heart and with deep love for one another. And when we do this, even though the world's gonna hate us, as Jesus said they would, they won't be able to look at us and say that the gospel doesn't work. Those who we witness to will see that if Jesus can change us, he can change them too. The worship team's gonna come back up and we're gonna pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. Lord, we confess our dependency on you this morning. We recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. We ask that you'd forgive us for the ways of our lives that aren't honoring to you and that you would cleanse us from every defilement of body and spirit. And by your Holy Spirit, you would encourage us to pursue holiness in the fear of you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And I ask, Lord, that in every way, you would be honored and you would be glorified. And we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus.